Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I'm your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Khalil Cage. Khalil, just cause Cage, is a poet, keynote speaker, educator, and two-time author. He holds a BS in Human Development and Family Studies from Kent State University, and he's written poetry for over 10 years and has performed spoken word for the last six. Born in Chicago, raised in Columbus, he currently resides in Cleveland. In January of 2022, Khalil founded the Sparrow's Fortune, an organization whose mission is to inspire, encourage, and educate community through arts, entertainment, and creative writing workshops. Through TSF, the team further launched their project Root, Realizing Our Own Talents Initiative, where they host writing workshops for students and adult focused and adults focused on developing emotional intelligence and mental well-being. In June of 2022, he released his debut poetry book, Evolving When Love Has No Reality. And at the start of this year, Khalil became a Room in the House Fellow of Karamu House, the oldest African-American theater in the United States. Later in 2023, Khalil Cage and more... This year, that's, this is 2024. Sorry, anyway. Right, it's all good. <laughs> I actually need to change that around. <laughs> Later in 2023, Khalil Cage and Morgan Page released their live studio album and book, Bear in the Flesh. He serves as the executive director of the Sparrow's Fortune, the chief operating officer of Poetry Unplugged, an open mic experience that follows artists to be limitless in their expression. Recently, he was awarded the Helping Hands Award by the Cuyahoga County ADA-MHS Board because of the communal nature of his work in the poetry world. His poetry and spoken word most often highlight the Black community, trauma resilience, hope, healing, spiritual pr principles, and more. Cause, pronounced cause, stands for collection of seeds. That's C-O-S. He sees his words as just a collection of seeds planted into the hearts of those who listen, and he hopes to continue honoring this moniker and planting seeds of impact in every community he visits. Khalil, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm having a great time already. <laughs> All right. Butcher the year. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of comic relief. We need that. We need that. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. That's good. I'm still writing the wrong dates on all my paperwork anyway. So. I've definitely done that a couple of times. <laughs> Could you please start us with a poem? Yeah. Yes, I would love to. So this piece comes from my first book, Evolving When Love Has No Reality. It is called Wandering Eyes, and I'll just go along with it. So it goes like this. I still have eyes that wander. I wonder, will my wife be okay with my constant blinking? I'm praying I hit the brakes before I hit a bumper. I keep my seatbelt buckled, eyelids as peeled as bananas, and yet I'm still learning how to keep my eyes on the road. I've taken driving courses but never on the highway of monogamy. I found my way home one way or another. I mean, I've always come home some way or another. I mean, I've always found myself coming home to someone and bringing another. I've actually never dated just one woman. I mean, like nobody has ever had me to themselves. I'm always drifting, dragging the cat in, you know, I always kept a bag with me. Someone is always in my passenger seat and I've always left room in the back seat too. I'm a back streets type of dude. You can't catch me in traffic. I do magic like hocus pocus to keep the focus off my forehead. You can't afford me. You'll never be enough for a man like me. 
a bottomless basket of hopes and dreams. Just when it seems as if you've reached my heart, it beats and you're right back to square one. It thumps and you jump to conclusions, chasing the illusion that it'll always be just you and me. But I'm not that kind of guy. Only a few women have been large enough to hold my attention. And even then, the span of time felt more like detention. I'm not one for retention. I'm not one for safekeeping. Sooner or later, the truth starts creasing. The floorboards start creaking. I start creeping. TLC ain't enough to feed me. And to be real, I don't know what will. I'm still trying to figure that out. Until then, I'm sending the next few seasons out. I've been wandering around the block a few times. And I think I'm finally tired out. Wandering out. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't think about this until you were reading, but do you feel, do you feel like you're drifting often? Like even your bio is like, I was born here. I went here. Now I'm here. Like, mm -hmm. do you feel like you're settled in Cleveland or do you feel like it's all transient? Oh yes. Very much all transient. And that's actually one thing that I'm in the middle of writing a book about is called uh, lost in the city. And ultimately it kind of, describes how in every city I've kind of almost lost myself and then had to find myself in this kind of that I grew up in Chicago and then grew up in Columbus and then after Columbus I lived in Kent while I was at school and in college so I grew up again in Kent and now being in Cleveland I'm going through like the fourth season of me growing and so I think my life has always been transient I tell a couple of my friends so growing up by the time I was 18, we had moved about 17 or 18 times. We moved about once a year growing up. So I'm used to I'm used to drifting. I'm used to packing my bags and being able to go when, where, however I want. And it wasn't until I was actually, I want to say 20, where me and my roommates had this had this house. And I was like, okay, I got two years of school left. I'm not going nowhere. Like I'm gonna sit for two or three years to allow myself to not go anywhere else. So yeah, transient is definitely a large part of who I am too. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that freedom's in your poetry too. Mm -hmm. I mean, not, not just, not just the things you say, but the, the, the way you structure it. Mm -hmm. uh, do you, has any, has any place ever felt like home? Um, Honestly, Cleveland, Cleveland has felt like home. I think, so I wanted to move to Cleveland back when I was 19. Friend of mine, he was also into poetry, Elijah, Elijah Austin. Me and him was just hanging out one day and he brought me up to Cleveland to kick it, hang out. And I'm we driving around the city and I'm looking around like, I like this place. This is cool. I, I like it. And that sounds so crazy for somebody to be like in the middle of Cleveland, like, oh, I like it here. I want to move here. But <laughs> that's how I felt. That's exactly how I felt. Just walk, and we were like over in East Cleveland. Like, no, it. But it felt like home. It felt like where I was supposed to be at. And so I knew right then. I was nineteen. I said, "Yeah, if I get the chance, I'm moving to Cleveland." And it worked out to where a week after I graduated from Kent, I moved to Cleveland, and I've been here for about three years, almost four years, and I'm loving it. I love every single second of it. That's awesome. Where where were you guys at? Were you guys down in the uh, university circle or? No, we were. Honestly, I couldn't tell you. I 
it was funny because I'm I remember right before I said I wanted to move to Cleveland, I was like, Y'all got five numbers for y'all addresses? <laughs> I forgot where we were, but I honestly I think we were over by Superior, like somewhere in the Superior area, um, close to St. Clair, somewhere in that realm. But it just felt like, no, this is where I'm supposed to be. Maybe not in that space, in, in that area, but I knew overall Cleveland was where I was supposed to be at. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Hear that the rest of the state of Ohio? Cleveland's, <laughs> Cleveland's where it's at. <laughs> so I want to ask about your name because <laughs> why why Seeds? Because maybe it's like the gardener in me or your your stage name is so poetic. Um, but why seeds? And then what was the seed that got you into writing? Mm -hmm. Um, so to talk about seeds, right. Um, my first recollection of thinking of myself as seeds, or I'll say thinking of myself as a tree, it actually traces back to a biblical parable of Jesus, like killing the fig tree or like, um, smiting the fig tree because it wasn't producing fruit. And it really intrigued me to think about the idea of producing fruit year in and year out. And ultimately, the idea of producing became center stage in my mind. Like, what does it mean to be a producer? Um, not to say that not producing is like this terrible thing, because overproduction can be pretty dangerous, too. But I would say that in nature, production or creativity is an instinct almost. So even before I was a writer or I'll say writing consistently. I've always been a writer. I've always seen myself as a producer. And more importantly, I've always seen myself as a tree. And in one maybe arrogant way <laughs> or egocentric way, but you know, the cartoons, um, when you think about the princess cartoons and there's these trees and all the birds are flying around this tree and all the animals and the squirrels are, are around this tree. I would like to think that when I'm producing fruit correctly, when I'm producing in a, in a good way, that we can create environments um, with our leaves, with our fruit, with with our strength as trees. And I stopped, I started to see myself as a tree, but also other people as trees and wanting to nurture them as well. And when you think about the fruit of a tree, when the, when the fruit falls, right, um, ultimately that seed gets embedded into the ground all over again, which will only produce more fruit, which will only produce more trees. So that's really what what created that. And all a tree is ultimately is a collection of seeds. All a tree is, is, is this big old um, monument that carries and reproduces seeds over and over and over again, year in and year out when it's producing correctly. So I think that's where the name seeds really came from. Um, that parable about um, the fig tree. And so to answer your second question about what was the first personal seed, it was actually rap. So I think I told you about this a while ago, but I used to want to be a rapper, right? So it was listening to other writers. So people like Lil Wayne and Jay-Z and Young Jeezy, they were all part of my playlist back when I was seven, eight, nine years old. And so it was kind of like this awe to hear these people say these words and string them along in in an extravagant metaphor, and and it still made sense. I thought that was a, a incredible act of talent. So that that's what started it. And then by the time I hit sixth or seventh grade, 
I'm reading poems by Pablo Neruda and, and Sharon Creech and, and of course, like Langston Hughes. And they started to trickle in, like I said, by the time I got to seventh grade. So poetry started to take precedent because now I understand it don't always have to rhyme. I can play with it a little bit more. So that really started to trickle in a lot more. So I would definitely say rap is what started it. And then poetry started to actually take precedent once I got a little bit older. Awesome. And so so you have so you have you leave Kent State and you you come to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And because I want to I want to set up how the Sparrows Fortune started. Okay. Like because you, you know, so you find this place, you start to feel like this place is home, and you have this desire to make a nurturing meadow, which by the way, I don't think that's egocentric necessarily, because I think it'd be egocentric if you're like, if your meadow sucked and every, I'm like the grass was dead <laughs> and you're like, no guys, you should be happy with this dead grass. That's but right. <laughs> I, think, I think the compulsion to make a beautiful space that other people feel comfortable sharing in is a, a powerful thing. Um, so why, you know, when, when you were putting together this idea for the Sparrow's fortune, what, what did you have in your head and what were you chasing? Like, Mm -hmm. uh not it, it's not just production or necessarily like a nice environment but you had very specific goals you know mm -hmm. how, how did that come about what my main goal was was collaboration and so the sparrow's fortune right and the sparrow's fortune started long before 2022 it actually started at kent state and at kent there's a plethora of amazing artists my like i don't know there's a plethora of amazing artists. So people like Ephraim Nehemiah was there when I was there. This guy named Ahmad, he was there. He was a rapper. Damian McClendon was there. Um, we had Lacey Talley. She was there. It was it was so many great photographers. Uh, Peja, his name is Peja. Uh, or his real name is Jermaine. He's an excellent photographer, excellent DJ, excellent painter. He does all of it, right? And being in such a... a artistic space I was like what if we came together and just did some like cool stuff together and granted back then I wasn't fully equipped to to maintain or navigate that that weight of artistry from from so many different people and to and to put it all together in the way that I saw it coming together and it wasn't the Sparrow's Fortune back then it was something like saw I don't even know what that meant no <laughs> but something about like artists of Kent State University or something like that but yeah I wasn't equipped for it then but that dream kind of stayed in my heart it kind of it kind of stayed with me and so the plan to move to Cleveland I knew that Cleveland was artistic city I knew that Cleveland was very ingrained in the arts whether that was poetry or dance or music or anything of, of the above. And so my move to Cleveland was for artistic growth, um, really. And so being in Cleveland, I kind of, the idea or the dream of collaborating with other artists, it had subsided by the time I got to Cleveland. But once I got to Cleveland and I saw the, the amazing talent that was here, and I saw people like Avery Lamar Pope or Shatara Jordan or Quiet Kid or or Morgan Page or Wall Street West and and CR like all of these amazing talented poets. I was like, 
Oh no, I got to work with them. I really, I, I was very excited to to work with with these folks, and so that was. I got to Cleveland back in May. I think by December of twenty twenty one. I had already been in conversation with different folks about like, yeah, I think this is an idea, something I want to do. And I think that's the beautiful thing about creating something is that once it's created, it takes a life of its own because originally the Sparrow's Fortune, it was just supposed to be a performance. Like we were just going to get together and perform a few times and it was going to be like an event, an event series, but it ultimately transformed into something so much greater. And I'm thankful for that too. So that's that's the origins of the Sparrow's Fortune. I had already had it in my heart. I just wanted to collaborate with other artists because I think it's beautiful when two minds or three minds can come together and create something. And I thought that why not? Why not do that with poetry too? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, from what I know about you, it, that's that's a big thing the collaboration mm-hmm. um you know i think i saw that you were a, a camp counselor and you, you you volunteered with the boys and girls club and you were already involved in other uh you know philanthropic or or, or working with kids and like in, mm-hmm. in positive in positive spaces so how, how did you get from like this is an event series to was it just like a natural inclination that you had or was it like, no, there's a need here that I can fulfill? I think it was a combination of both. So I used to work at this place called the Diversity Center of Northeast Ohio. And working there, I was a facilitator. But the thing about me working there is that I actually was volunteering there first. So let's rewind it back a little bit. Um, in 2000. I want to say 2013, 2013 and 2014, I was an intern at the Columbus Urban League, and I learned a lot about philanthropy. I learned a lot about financial literacy, about the importance of youth work. And I knew then that I wanted to work with young people, but I just didn't necessarily know how. And I knew I wanted to be an artist, but again, being 15 or 16, I didn't know how artists could show up for young people at the time. All I knew was rappers and the rappers, they wasn't coming to kick it. So that's, I just knew that there was a different route. I just didn't know what route that was. So boom, let's fast forward to 2016. This is my freshman year at Kent State and my mentor of Cupida, Cupida was a mentoring program for students of color at Kent State. Danisha Hawkins, that was my mentor. And I was telling her like, yeah, I really like volunteering. I like doing work with young people. And Danisha like, okay. Danisha, and I tell her this all the time, like she set my life up in a way completely different way because Danisha did two things in that meeting. She told me to apply and perform at the Renaissance Ball, which was my first time on stage performing. And she also told me to sign up and apply to be a camp counselor at the Diversity Center of Northeast Ohio. And so being at the Diversity Center of Northeast Ohio, as a volunteer, it was probably the same night after all the students got there. The fall retreat was a camp where about 100 students came together and everybody kind of mismatched. And we were the camp counselors to teach them about things like, again, inclusion and the importance of speaking kind to one another and educating them on things like immigration, things like self-identity and self-love. 
and and social justice. So those were the types of conversations. And to have a kid from Beachwood talking to a kid from East Tech about racial discrimination, about um, social injustices, about immigration, about self-identity, it was like, it blew my mind. And so by the end of the night, I'm sitting there and I'm talking to my friend Aaliyah. I say, I could do this for the rest of my life. I could do this. This is what I want to do. And that was my freshman year of school. So mind you, I still have four or five years of college left, but I knew then that this was something I wanted to do. And so by, by then I knew that education was important. So I wanted to go into somewhat social services, but also understand that I, I don't want to be necessarily a teacher, but I like the idea of being a facilitator. And as things were having, the pandemic hit and DCNEO, uh, a mentor of mine from DCNEO, I was volunteering throughout the years and I got close with them. Always, always build rapport. Relationships and rapport is really important. But a mentor of mine, Brian Anthony, he shot me a text and said, hey, I'm leaving DCNEO soon. I would like you to take my place. And I said, what? That's kind of crazy. But as, as things will have it, by the start of 2021, I was working at the Diversity Center just a semester before I graduated from Kent State. When And so I'm working full time and got 22 credits in school. And I'm like, we got to knock it out. So that is how I ended up in Cleveland. I was working at DCNEO and that funded everything to, to get to Cleveland. And I also knew that I still wanted to be uh, an artist, a, a poet. And so throughout that time at DCNEO, I learned a lot about facilitation. And I was also taking my own classes on teaching and what it means to build curriculum on the side, as well as, again, being a performer, being being a um, an artist altogether, and just getting acclimated within the community. And so by the time the Sparrows Fortune came around, like I said, at first it was just going to be performance. And I was doing creative writing workshops on my own, like just as Just Cause or as Khalil Cage, I was doing creative writing workshops. And Morgan Page, um, another very talented artist, the other artist I created Bear in the Flesh with, we were having a conversation one day and she was like, you know, if you teach me how to do the creative writing workshops, like we could both do it and we could put it under the Sparrow's Fortune. And that way we can learn how to teach other artists and not just kids, but we could teach people about poetry and what poetry can do. And that is is what what did it. That's what did it. And so like you said, was it an immediate conversation of, oh no, I can create this impact with this. But as time went on, we started to see the emotional impact. We started to see the growth in people and and not like like Morgan said, not just youth, but the adults that we started working with. We were working with, we, we still work with people who were previously incarcerated or in addiction recovery services. So to have those conversations and within a matter of an hour, they like, I don't want to hear no poetry. I don't care about poetry. So like, <laughs> oh my goodness, can I share my piece now? And that is, that was I love it. I love I love every single second of it. So like I said, I think the Sparrows kind of, it birthed, it was birthed from me, but then it birthed me all over again. And, and so now I'm blessed to be able to be running the Sparrows Fortune 
and it is it's a blessing every single day i love every single second of it so yeah <laughs> that's awesome like and like when you're when you're in these spaces cuz you're you're working with you know people who are down and out or you know just <laughs> shit out of luck and and do you have what do you like when when it comes that when you're doing like a writing workshop um how important does mentorship become could as someone who was mentored and guided um mm -hmm. and you know you're describing these conversations that are very difficult like this is <laughs> this is you know inequities these are racial injustices these are things that um that you know young kids experience may experience on a day-to-day -day basis but don't have the words for yet mm -hmm. and so when you're working with with groups or you're you know you're working with people who are being rehabilitated um even when you're doing a writing workshop, how does the mentorship come into play and how do you recognize that it's needed? I think that mentorship comes by way of conversation. That's the best way. And conversation comes by way of vulnerability. And so with a lot of the workshops, we start out with a poem. So I'll share a, a little bit of my work. I go into my relationship with my father, for instance, and within, I have a poem called Doggy Dog World and another one titled Baseball. And within those two poems, I really break down how I felt about my mom's relationship with my dad and how their relationship impacted me. And then I talk about my dad being a hustler and how that impacted me when I was an adolescent and I wanted my pops around, but he was either taking care of making sure the bills was paid or he was locked up. And how that really impacted me as an adolescent at 14, 15, knowing I needed mentorship, but the people who I who I really wanted to mentor me weren't there. And so starting conversations with the realness of our lives often translates to that vulnerability that transfers to the participants of our workshops. And we get to talk to them about the reality. And so one of our workshops talking we talk about finding my identity and so we talk about different artists that we might listen to rap artists that we listen to but what's the reality of why we listen to them if Lil Wayne is your favorite artist what does Lil Wayne talk about what did he rap about if NBA Youngboy is your favorite artist what did he talk about how do you how do you relate to that if Beyonce is your favorite artist what does she talk about how do you how do you relate to that and then going deeper into if you relate to them in this way how can you share your story in this way too? And that that's typically how we how we begin to dive into the dive into identifying the needs. I'll, I'll say that. And then from there, I think mentorship is almost um inevitable because you begin to build a relationship with with the folks. And so that is is nurturing to me too, because I've sat in conversations with people who were twice my age, 50, 50 years old, who were like, wow, I needed to have this conversation. And I actually just recently back in August facilitated a workshop where my father was present. We were in the um, rehabilitation center where he was like actually there. And that was in a lot of ways life-changing because one of the people who asked, it was like, ain't this your son? Like, how do you feel about seeing this this happen? And my and my father was actually a person to to connect the dots and have us come 
um, come to facilitate the workshop, but it was definitely um, generational, generationally shifting. Um, it was a generationally shifting moment for, for both of us. And so I really enjoyed that. And so when I'm speaking to other folks, it's, it's the same thing. It's knowing that somewhere down the line, you needed this moment. And I'm, I'm thankful that regardless of my age, regardless, regardless of my stature, you still found this moment important with me, um, and with, with Morgan and with other teaching artists as well. So. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. So like, how do you, when you guys are discussing the identity, this is more of like a curious tangent than anything else, but like when you're, when you guys are talking about des um, um, identity, do you, do you ever get into like the difference between like the artist and the persona behind, like the, the, the actual person behind them? Because I mean, you brought up Beyonce who she was in Destiny's Child. She was different in Destiny's Child than she is as Beyonce. And then as a businesswoman and as a person, she's obviously going to be very different there. And like, I don't know, like, um, GZA is different in the Wu-Tang Clan than when he's making the album <laughs> Liquid Swords. So like what we're, how, how do you guys parse that out? And like, where, where does it lead you? Yeah. And we talk about that too. Again, when we use ourselves as those examples, I talk about how, um, cause with identity, we have to talk about character. And so in one way I show up in this room as, this poet, but when I'm with my family, I'm just Khalil. Like I don't get to have on this hat and and be this artistic genius that people might see. You know, um, I don't get to be um, in the classroom, and I'm not always an artist when I'm in the classroom. Right? Sometimes I'm just facilitating a conversation, and so we talk about those different aspects as well. And especially when we're in um, areas where students want to rap about guns and they want to rap about violence and I explain to them well what if your favorite artist is putting up a front like what if they faking how does that make you feel right like how do you feel knowing that they lying to you so <laughs> it kind of makes it a little bit comical too to to have those conversations because they get to dive into okay well what is this person actually saying and so sometimes we might read over lyrics and and go over okay he said that he was doing this in this way do you think that that was the truth or if you was in this situation how would you actually respond and somebody might might say i was like i was working in the classroom with one of the kids and we were reading the cardi b lyric and she said something about stealing something from somebody and i was like so let's put ourselves in the shoes of the person who got something stole from us how would you feel about that and it was like, I had to fight. I had to, I had to throw it in. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but now you listen to somebody rap about how they stole something from you. Now how you feel. So it's it's fun because we get to to role play in some areas as well, too. Oh, that's that's nice. That's nice. Mm -hmm. Let's let's talk about your poetry specifically. And okay. I always like looking at how people who start with spoken word and the spoken word poets and they they transition more toward publishing. Mm -hmm. um, and they start because I'm always interested in the structure and mm -hmm. it's, you know, spoken word poets, I don't think feel the same compulsion to structure things in a poetic way as as other writers do. And yours don't either, which is great. So you you have like <laughs> of your writing, you have like these these heavily lineated pieces and they're like they're almost broken down by their beat. 
you know, mm -hmm. or or like by by sentences, and or you have these like large uh, like prose poetry monologues. So how do you organize that work and why? Okay, um, and I'm really happy that you pointed this out because is this and and something else that you pointed out too. But I organize my work on the page the same way I would perform it. And my hope has always been that the reader will read it the way I would perform it. So, and I learned this side note, I learned this a little after, I learned to write like this a little after writing Evolving When Love Has No Reality. So for the folks who read this book, please forgive me when I wrote that. <laughs> I was very hell-bent on not having an editor because I wanted my art to be art. And I didn't really get the purpose of editing at that time. Uh, but then again, coming from the world of spoken word and, and namely slam poetry, you get into your head a little bit about what's art and what's not. How someone might look at your piece and say, oh, that's art. And then look at another piece of yours and say, no, nah, that's not art. So forgive me for that. Um, but <laughs> anyway, I organize it in the way that I perform because it matters within the way the reader pulls in the information. So when actually writing my spoken word piece, it's a different mixture of monologue and almost prose because a lot of my work is a long sentence or different pieces of the story that add to the total point of view. So for instance, if there's a pause within a sentence, it's still a sentence, but still requires me to make that type of breathing room or space on the page without using a comma or colon or period or dash. Like I want the perfect example. I want the reader to stop and start again without it being too enunciated. But if you see the break, you're like, hmm, I should stop talking. I should stop <laughs> breathing. Yeah. Continue. So that's really, that's really the goal of it. And it also goes into, I like the way that you said refreshing because that was a, that was a nice way to describe it. <laughs> because honestly, from my perspective, from a person who wasn't, I would say untrained in the actual writing of poetry that led me to just write it how I wanted to communicate it, if that makes sense. And I'm blessed because I think it works. Like nobody has said nothing too crazy about it or being bad per se. So I think the way I write it, it works um, because my style is very rhythmic, very rhymy. And I think between writing it on the page and performing it, I found a way to make blocks of rhyme, but also utilize those blocks to get to the point or the punch, you might say. Um, and then to pick up that rhyme a little bit later is like a game of Tetris. I can play with the words for real. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's effective because some of it is so heavily enjammed that it's impossible not to stop or it's impossible not to take a breath or it's impossible not to like ready yourself because you'll leave, you know, plenty of white space before it gets like right back into it and then the rest of the text will be really compressed i mean these are all clues on how it's supposed to be read and then I, you know your you also pay attention to sound so it, it becomes i imagine like your work other people will struggle not to follow your rhythms and patterns whereas like sometimes you'll read a poet i know i know this happens to me like i'll i'll read a, po a, a poet's book and then I'll hear them read at a reading and like, oh, that sounds completely different. And it's, <laughs> that's a cool effect. Cause it's like, oh, I didn't expect that. And I realize where the emphasis is now. And that changes the way I look at this. 
but I think it's just as much of a trick to say, now you're going to read it the way I want you to. <laughs> and I'm going to use this to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, I think that, and just recently, Lit Cleveland just had their writing conference and I sat in on a book talk with um, Elizabeth Acevedo and she was reading and I'm listening to her read and I'm looking at like the way it's written and I can hear there's no periods here. It's supposed to speed up. It's supposed to speed up. I'm supposed to lose my breath. I'm supposed to have to catch my breath. And those three dots are important here. So I think that was a really good note I took away from not just her writing, but reading other prose and other pieces of poetry and not just poetry, but even in novels, when there's a section of dialogue and the character is ripping through something that needs to be said and there's no commas there's no periods is because that's the thought process that the character is going through so that's definitely a tidbit that i started to implement within my writing too okay yeah and, and another another thing you do is you'll take you'll make a very simple statement just just something that you know the it's almost like a grounding statement where it's um like i drown myself and then you'll follow it up by like launching into a metaphor or you take it, you, you take a hard right turn into poetic territory and it, it gets real raw. Um, so you have like one where after I drown myself, it's followed by in holy water, hoping to leave them on the altar or believe me, I'm torn, but my imagination's film is ripped and I've lost my scripts. Like I love those lines. Um, and is that, and, I, and, and is that like something from performance where it's like, I need the audience to understand what I'm saying so that it's communicated clearly, or is that just something that you do naturally? I think that it's honestly a combination between the two of them. It's, it's exactly that. The answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I, and I was very happy to see that you like spotted it out. Um, so I was just facilitating a writing workshop in December, and we typically don't read my poetry, but we ended up reading it, uh, reading one of the poems that I had and one of the folks pointed pointed out something similar. So I usually might start writing a poem with a simple sentence and then go back and expand on them in the editing process. So a way to really dive into the point I'm making and also extending the metaphor and stretching it a little bit further. Um, one of the most important things that I've learned uh, while being an educator is that most people don't really read at a collegiate level. That's the truth of it. Most people read uh, from seventh grade to about junior year, junior year of high school. That's where our reading skills lie at. And so I think that it's important when I'm creating curriculum and also when I'm writing poems, I keep simple language in mind. And it doesn't have to be extravagant. It can be articulate without being oversaturated with verbiage or, or words that you wouldn't use in everyday language. And honestly, it's easier to remember. So <laughs> it's, it's a collection of both of those because I think that as a writer, it's really important to know, and this is one of my one of the things that Avery, Avery Lamar Pope points out to me is that you have to go a little bit further. It's one thing to say, I'm drowning. What are you drowning in? How are you drowning? What's drowning you? What does it mean to be drowned? So definitely, like you said, for the sake of the audience, keeping the language simple, but also for the sake of poetry, pulling in and going a little bit deeper to extend what's already there. So definitely a combination of both. Okay. All right. 
and, and when when you're working uh when you're writing you know i <laughs> i've asked you this before it, it's it's a chicken and the egg thing with with the performance and writing um but how how does that work out for you are you performing while you're writing do you start like freestyling and then and then write it down is it just whatever the heck you feel like doing that day do you have a process that you really adhere to or is it you know transient getting transient i think that there's two methods and i'll break down the two methods that work for me the first method is i'll have an idea and i'll start writing it down and i'll whisper it and and finish it like maybe and then when i'm actually in the process of editing it i go for a walk and both processes include a walk because I need to walk. And so <laughs> the first one is I write it down and I'm just thinking it through. And then I go for a walk. And while I'm going for that walk, I'm standing out loud. And so saying out loud while editing them allows me to find the holes that need to be reworked or added or taken away. It's like I realized like, oh, no, that don't sound good here. Let me move this around. But I can also pinpoint after a poem is finished, I can pinpoint when something isn't cohesive or instrumental as I'd like it to be. Um, it helps me recognize where the emphasis needs to be added or it needs to be developed in one area or another or taking the flow from this part and adding it to this part. It definitely takes a lot of back and forth within my work. So both of them include walking, but again, when I may be starting a new piece, I might already be walking and I'm just saying stuff out loud. Like I'd be like, the sky's so blue today. Or um, I had a thought earlier today that's like, what do like do Jesus say stuff like that's you're a cool cat? Like <laughs> would he say something like that? Like if he in today's time, would he say something like, Yeah, you a cool cat? I don't know. I think I would like to think that he was that type of cool person that he could say some stuff like that. So like I just say stuff out loud until I like it enough to write it down. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> and usually when I'm walking, I have the space and time to just walk and write at the same time. And so typically walking might take two or three hours once I'm there because I'm editing and saying it out loud at once. So yeah, that's my that's my process. <laughs> yeah. And I think that and I'll say the last thing I'll say is that I think poetry and performance work together to become itself or to make a union for real. Because I can't finish a poem without knowing how to perform it either. Interesting. So you've never written a poem that like because I def I know I have. Have <laughs> you you've never written a poem that like you wouldn't feel comfortable like saying out loud or was it meant to be like read out loud? Okay, that's different. I think that I've never performed a poem that was never supposed to be performed. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think, of course, when writing is like, mm, no, I don't think this is supposed to be performed. But I do write it with the thought in mind that somebody's going to read this, but they'll have to read it the way I would read it. <laughs> so, yeah. That makes sense. Like... I I've I've noticed I've noticed that like there are poems that I just hate reading and I stopped reading them over time even though they're some of my favorite poems like that's how I started reading going to readings is like I'm gonna read my favorite pieces mm -hmm. and then they're just awkward some of them most of them and I I wound up gravitating toward ones I didn't like so much 
just because they were better. Mm -hmm. But I went through a different trial and error process because I didn't come at it from a performance space. Yeah. So, and I think that's one thing that we talked about that really intrigued me. And we had a conversation about how coming from a written space or, or a more literary space versus a performing art space with poetry, um, it definitely changes your view on what pieces might be good, what pieces might be bad. And so um, when when you're writing, right, is it that you think about performing? Because that's one thing that I, I work through sometimes is trying to decide in the moment, am I going to perform this? Am I not going to perform this? Like when you're writing, do you think about if you're going to perform it or not? I think about it way more now than I ever did. I, mm -hmm. I Every year it feels like I I spend more and more time thinking about that. But what usually happens is I start writing something and I, and sometimes it's catchy. And if it's catchy, I'll start saying it out loud or I'll like look down and be like, this probably would be pretty good out loud. Mm. And, um, you know, and, and then, then I start doing things intentionally to make it easier to read out loud. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I've always been a fan of repetition, not in like super obvious ways, but things that you can like emphasize differently throughout. Um, or, you know, I, I like internal and slant rhymes. Um, I like, uh, I think what can be really powerful is taking a free verse poem and then just like having a rhyming couplet. Cause that always like really feel like it really lands real well. And then you can like, that gives you then the freedom to like mix it up and make the rest of the poem very different. Um, so I think I've gotten more playful over time, but I don't very, very rarely do I start out saying I'm going to write a performance piece. Mm. Um, but I, I think the answer to that is I just need to start going to like slam, slam events. And then. <laughs> yeah, kick it, man. The more you hear people perform, the more you want to perform. And I think I say that because with me, the more I read writings, I said, oh, no, I want to write. <laughs> so well, hopefully we'll rub off on you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's just be overlap until the Venn diagram becomes a circle. <laughs> <laughs> so in your in your poem, Lineage, you, you wrote, uh, I really wanted to ask you about this one because these are themes that are in like all over your work. You wrote, mm -hmm. Lineage covers only a small fraction of the joy I have in representing my last name. And then the poem goes right into a very complicated relationship you have with God. You're, you're a spiritual person, um, but there's aspects of, you know, religious institutions that are, you know, don't jive. And I was just hoping you could unpack that a little bit because it's, it's a fascinating poem. And I think that your poems are spiritual. Um, there are definitely some poems that feel spiritual, that feel like, you know, almost meditative. And so I was just wondering, you know, what that means for Khalil. Yeah. So when I think about lineage, I always think about bloodline. And you you got to follow me because I'm about to go off on a tangent a little bit. Right. Um, when I think about bloodline, bloodlines are what closes and opens gates, whether that may be physical. Um, when we think about American history, we can talk about energetically, we could talk about spiritually. In history, your bloodline will very well determine what tribe you're part of, like curses and blessings and covenants. Of course, that shows up biblically, but make no mistake that these things also happened outside of the Bible too. 
And outside of those measures of bloodline, even if we think about it in a Western Western type of way, scientifically, we're aware that bloodline has everything to do with behavioral traits or medical trends or physiological traits too. And so I've become very mindful of what I allow inside my body, what I consume and digest, not just food-wise, but the things that I watch, the things that I listen to, what environments I place myself in, and also ultimately who I decide to marry and have kids with, because ultimately her bloodline matters too. So a little bit about how I came to really not study bloodline, but think that it's important is that I was, I want to say it was my freshman year, I studied this term epigenetics for my writing class. And so epigenetics is basically um, the study of how our environment and the things that we consume um, in our atmosphere ultimately play a large role in not just our future of health and, and emotional well-being and mental well-being, but our next generation's future of health and emotional well-being and mental well-being. And so that meant the things that we eat, the things that we drink, the environments we put ourselves in all change over time based on what we decide. And again, if you take that scientific reasoning and in the studies that were done in epigenetics and you take that look in the history books or again, biblically um, with people like Daniel, for instance, like he couldn't eat meat, like he, he was fasting for meat, right? Um, you have commandments like don't eat pork or don't eat bottom feeders. And you have people like the Nazarites who took vows to not cut their hair or drink alcohol or go to funerals. So it's like all of these things are age old phenomena that we, I would say, are relearning as a civilization. And I'm saying all of this because I think that spiritually, there is a big relationship between our creator, God, and things we do to survive. And I would even argue our favor in that survival. And I think that it would be foolish to say that diet and our environment doesn't play a role in that, especially when you think of things like pollution, when you think about the, the um, health disparities due to um, environments, when you think about social determinant of health, when it comes to adverse childhood experiences, when we talk about um, the the post post-traumatic incarceration syndrome, when we talk about post-traumatic slave syndrome, all of these different different things play a huge role in again bloodline and the things that our kids grow up to to have to deal with because we didn't deal with it beforehand. And um, I think that going back to the favor thing, I think we should put a big emphasis on favor when we bring up spirituality too, because I would say that as I reflect on my lineage, we've been through some terrible conditions. And I'm talking about like my actual, like my last name, Cage. Um, we've been through some difficult conditions and we've had difficult conditions, but we were still favored and still favored to live and breathe and think and have our being. And I would say it all comes up in my work because it's all a large part of me. And honestly, when I wrote Lineage, and you could you could hear it, that I was very much against fighting the institution. Um, <laughs> I was I was it was honestly like mm, I wouldn't use the word anger, but definitely disappointment and frustration. Um, I wrote Lineage. I wrote Lineage after I had just had a pretty bad relationship with a church that I was going to, 
which led me to questioning not only my relationship with God, but ultimately questioning God and then questioning my art itself because a large part of that relationship was, oh, you don't write about God enough. Or you don't you don't use your gifts to to magnify God in this way. And so I think in transparency, I wrote lineage as a rebuttal, as a, as a way to say, no, God still care about me. And yes, I come from a place that may not be favored by the largest part of society, but we still found a way to, to survive. And obviously, if I'm here, then God found it imperative to keep us alive and keep us in a place of peace, regardless of what the rest of the world or quote unquote church for that matter might say. And so that was that 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 poem was one of my favorite poems. It's still one of my favorite poems because I was very honest in that piece, um, regardless of the frustration that I was going through. And I would argue that was a pretty sound rebuttal. So <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I, I think it's a fantastic poem. I, I read it multiple times. Um, what did you hear? Like when you, when you, what were some things that stood out to you from the, from the piece? Frustration, uh, self-assurance, confidence that these were your answers and this is how you saw the world and that it wasn't like a confusion about a filter. You know, I, I'm like, sometimes I think when, when people explore poetry, through, through explore spirituality through poetry they you know I, I and it's not a bad thing this is not a criticism of of writing that tends to be spiritual it's either I, it's either celebratory right it's almost like this this would be read in a church and mm -hmm. is like praise god or there's like soul searching and confusion like this you know, the world's confusing and like there there might be a verse in there about like how can God allow bad things to happen or they'll they'll go to the well that's like, well, this is what religion represents for my family, but not for me. And there's like you, you get the sense that they're on a journey, but for you it felt like the glasses were on, the prescription was set, you were you knew what you were looking at and how you were interpreting it. And I thought that that, that was what drew it to drew me to it, was that like definitive i am who i am i have this relationship and i really don't care how you feel about that relationship because that relationship is where i've landed and it works for me and i am being celebratory in these ways but i can also be critical i think it's like the same sort of thing where you know <laughs> when someone i think a deeply patriotic thing to do is to be critical about government you know, I think that that shows that you care enough to know what the problems are and to demand something that's better. And I don't think you're making demands, I, but I think that that's like the closest relationship that I can think of. Yeah. You know. yeah, that's real. I think in that moment when I was going through that that um, experience, I was definitely in a space of wanting to make demands or in a space of uh, making demands. So I agree. I, I, I see that. So. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you for writing. It was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you have like when you're looking at um, you know, ritual and tradition? Because mm -hmm. you know, you've got Catholicism, which is heavily defined by tradition and ritual, and then you've got you know Methodists, maybe less so, and then you've got Buddhists who are less than that. And and um, do you think that? that those rituals and traditions are restricting 
like unnecessarily or do you think it's a different form of expression and it's just not for you or like where do you land on that and like how do you see it like either spiritually or artistically because i think you can be creative with how you express your spirituality i think that ritual is for some for some folks i think it's helpful because it's almost kind of like a guide point uh, a guidance to to i think of it as a routine right so in the morning i have a morning routine i get up i go read after i read i journal after i journal i go to the gym i work out for about an hour maybe an hour and a half i come home i start my tea i make breakfast i get in the shower boom i'm ready to start my day right that's a method to make sure that I'm in line, that my mind is clear, that I feel um, like I absorbed something of worth, that I worked out my body. So like that's a ritual to me in one way or another. And that's a guide point to make sure that I feel secure, to make sure that I've poured out what I need to pour out. I've picked up what I need to pick up and I'm ready to, to handle my, my daily tasks, right? I think that with religion, um, ritual takes that same shape. Um, however, I do believe that ritual can be um, subjective. It can definitely be subjective based on the individual, based on the individual's relationship with that uh, higher power or that deity, with that God. I think that ritual can be um, suffocating for some because I know that it's not easy to stay on routine. <laughs> I wake up, if if I wake up at 5 a.m. on a consistent basis and I wake up at 7, I'm all the way out of whack. That's two hours I've lost. And so that same thing with, with ritual, oh my goodness, I didn't do this the right way. Ah, the rest of my day is done or the rest of my week is done. I, I get that. I think that um, I wouldn't, honestly, specifically with religion, um, for me, ritual isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I definitely think it could be miscommunicated. Um, ritual can be useful, but it has to be used correctly altogether. Um, and when it is misused, when it is um, misdirected, it could definitely have damaging effects on the congregation, on the people who are are um, practicing the ritual altogether. So. Okay, cool, mm -hmm. cool, cool. All right, uh, do you want to wrap up with the poem? Uh, yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. This is great. Um, so you want to leave on like, like, uh, I'm gonna let you choose because I just, I just abruptly like, I just realized that we're, we're like way over time. So oh, sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to give that hard of a of a of a turn on it, but <laughs> no, it's all good. Um. I'll let you choose. I mean, so I had this poem called Gone that I was going to read. Um, honestly, it's a poem about, like, the growth that I had to experience after, like, my ex-girlfriend and I experienced a miscarriage. Um, I also was going to read um, Lineage, since we were talking about Lineage. And then I also have a poem, uh, Babies. A lot of people like Babies. That's, like, a fun poem to read. So, Gone lineage or babies which one which one would you prefer we would really like to hear you read lineage i i love that poem <laughs> okay for sure <laughs> um let's get into it 
I was born into a long lineage of men who learned to be soldier before saint, who learned militants before mercy, who learned grit before grace. I come from a long lineage of men who put priorities over pain, who put freedom over chains, who always put seed over grain. I come from a long lineage of hustlers. We grew up to steal before we starve. We grew up stargazing at fast cars, big rims, thin tires. We get tired just chasing them down the block. See, see, I grew up on the block. Let me tell it. I've been grown since I was 10. I come from a place that turns boys to men long before the end of the road, because sadly, most of us meet it before we turn the corner of 18. We never learned about bending down on one knee. No, see, we bleed. We bleed with our heads held high. We are taught early about the price of our pride. You couldn't pry my heart open if you tried, I promise. My nigga, I promise, I already died like, like four or five times. See, I come from a long line of ghosts. We be Lazarus, or maybe, maybe God just be too lazy to kill us. We be too alive to die. We be too full of liquor to lie. We be too full of ourselves to cry. We be stone. Hearts be as callous as our hands. Our life paths be stony and shit. From my perspective, quite lonely, but we don't trip. We don't trip over rocks. We kick them and keep it moving. I come from a long lineage of movers and groovers. We be groovy. We grind and create symphonies. We chew on grind and still somehow spit out the sound of music. I can only imagine how amused the angels must be at how we show resiliency so effortlessly. Simply us being alive this very second is all the evidence we need to say we supersede the saturation of police policies and all the lies the media feeds us and we still, we still find hope to live another day regardless of how they treat us. They label men like us. They label men like us demons. Say, we don't know what it means to be decent. Say, not even Jesus could save us heathens, but good thing. Good thing God's grace don't discriminate. Good thing heaven got a pocket for even men like me. See, I come from a long lineage of men who learned to sell souls for free. They say, good dope sell itself. So I decided I would sell the world. Me, I grew up under a regime where repentance was only seen when mama took me to church. We were taught that God was too clean for our dirt, taught he was too mean for our hurt. We was taught that church folks were too redeemed to never curse, but see men like me. Men like me, we refused to be showered in shame. So that left us to rain. So that left us to rain. When it got cloudy outside, we didn't run home. We take it to the chin. We walked in the rain. Cause see, not even lightning. Not even lightning can strike out my name. I be Khalil James Cage. You just so happen to call me just cause. Cause God still figured it feasible to plant seeds around my pain. Now I get applause and travel in planes just for breaking off pieces of my brain. But see, men like me, men like me not even supposed to see a stage. We be destined for an early grave or a life locked behind chains. But thank God, because every generation, we found a way to survive regardless of the lives beside us falling to the wayside. Because see, men like me, y'all, men like me, men like me, live forever.
Thank you. That, Thank you. That was good. That was amazing. Um, okay. Uh, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Khalil, Thank you so much, so very much for donating your time and, and chatting. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great conversation and I can't wait for another conversation just like it. Heck yeah. <laughs>